I'm Grant Haver. I'm Zoe Weinberg. And this is Next in Foreign Policy, the podcast where the next generation of national security and foreign policy leaders talk about the issues of today and tomorrow. Today, we're joined by Ali Wine. Ali is a senior analyst with the Eurasia Group's global macro practice, focusing on U.S.-China relations and great power competition. Amongst his many other prestigious titles, Ali is the newest member of Foreign Policy for America's board. Ali, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's really an honor and a privilege to be here. So, Ali, set the table for us. Where are we right now vis-a-vis China, and how is the Biden administration approaching things differently? So, we, we're at a tense place. I, I, I don't think it really comes as a surprise. In terms of U.S.-China relations now versus perhaps during the, the Trump administration, I think particularly the last year of the Trump administration, I think that in the last year of the Trump administration, the relationship was more volatile. It was more unpredictable. I think that particularly uh, with the onset of the pandemic, I think that the better part of 2020 just witnessed this pretty dizzying spiral of kind of tit for tat, recrimination and retaliation. And there were new measures and countermeasures being announced almost on a daily basis. So the relationship was quite uh, volatile. It also, of course, came in the context of a very contentious presidential election in the United States. Under the Biden administration, the bilateral relationship is likely to be more stable, uh, likely to be more predictable. But I do think that strategic tensions are likely to grow more entrenched, uh, likely to uh, calcify. And one of the points of continuity, I shouldn't say continuity, but I do think that a, a, shared, a shared judgment of, I think, most Republicans and Democrats is that the United States needs to be more competitive vis a vis China. It needs to be it needs to take a more assertive stance, you know, vis-a-vis China. Where we are right now is we're trying to figure out how to narrow the gap between hardening sentiment and considered prescription. And one of the reasons that I, I, I sometimes push back a little bit on the notion that there is a new U.S. consensus on China is that when I think about consensus, consensus to me implies not only agreement upon sentiment, but it also implies some measure of agreement on how we operationalize that sentiment. So when we hear, for example, we need to get tough on China, well, different individuals probably had different ideas about what it means to get tough. But it seems to me that right now we're trying to figure out, we recognize that China is a formidable competitor. We recognize that it's a multifaceted competitor. We recognize that China, barring some kind of catastrophe, it seems unlikely to go the way of the Soviet Union and collapse in spectacular fashion. It's likely to be an enduring competitor. And so then the question becomes, well, there are several questions. How do you achieve and sustain a competitive coexistence with a country that on the one hand is your chief competitor, but also an essential partner? The United States can't unilaterally accomplish its vital national interests in thinking about the full panoply of transnational issues. It does require cooperation, a baseline of cooperation with China. So how do you strike that balance? Number one, What kind of modus vivendi are we trying to accomplish with China? Where would we like to be in the bilateral relationship 25 years from now, 50 years from now? So I I think that we have a sense that we have this really pretty significant competitive challenge upon our hands. We're not as clear about where we would like to to go, how we're going to, to get there. And so... I think that right now what we are seeing, though, is is a doubling down in, in both countries. I do think that the Trump administration changed fundamentally, if not irreversibly, how the United States thinks about China. I think that prior to the arrival of the Trump administration, I think that both Republican administrations and Democratic administrations alike 
believed that uh, competitive uh, dynamics, while present in the U.S.-China relationship, wouldn't necessarily outstrip cooperative ones. I think that there was a feeling that, broadly, the trade and technological interdependence was a force for stability. That the, the more that Washington and Beijing deepened this interdependence, the more that they could impart a baseline of stability to a relationship that otherwise organically had very little foundation for growing. The, the Trump administration essentially said that interdependence has proven to be more destabilizing uh, than stabilizing. It's made the United States too vulnerable to China economically and in, in security terms. And I think that China also now, in parallel, has reached a conclusion that the United States no longer no longer seeks to pursue that type of interdependence. It's looking to recalibrate its interdependence. So I think we're going to see a doubling down in both Washington and Beijing, sort of preparations for a more protracted, multifaceted competition. For me, I'm a congenital optimist, so I'll stop with, I guess, a point of optimism. I do think that there is a recognition, or I, I would hope that there is a recognition, and I think that there is in both countries, that the United States and China on a range of issues, so pandemic disease, climate change, macroeconomic instability, and we can enumerate a, a very, very long litany. The United States and China, possessing the world's two largest economies, the world's two largest militaries, they're going to find it very difficult to achieve their own vital national interests if they don't talk. And so I think that the question is not, will they talk? I think the question is, when will they talk? How will they talk? What form will the conversations take? But I do think that both countries recognize that some form of competitive cohabitation is basically the only tenable modus vivendi over the medium to long term. The question is how we get from here to there. One thing that I worry about, Joseph and I wrote a book maybe two years ago called Do Morals Matter in Foreign Policy? And one of the things he talked about in the book was how metaphor is so important and how it shapes and constructs our thinking on these issues. And the Cold War is back. People are talking about it. You know, a metaphor has really hit its zenith when you have Bernie Sanders writing, we shouldn't go back into the Cold War. And so how does the Biden administration maintain what you were just saying is the delicate balance between a cooperation on one hand on these broad issues, but also a competition on some really, really important problems. A brief comment on the utility of analogy and also the, you know, the risks of analogy, whether in the realm of geopolitics or just in the, in the realm of just our day-to-day -day lives as individuals, when we are charting unfamiliar waters, we instinctively try to mine our past experiences to see if there are clues, to see if there are hints, to see if there are lessons that we might apply from our previous accumulated uh, reservoir of experiences to help us navigate these unfamiliar waters. And the Cold War, it furnishes America's only example of long-term multifaceted strategic competition. And so naturally and understandably, as the contours of this multifaceted systemic competition with China emerge, it's natural that policymakers and observers would say, well, we have an example in the not too distant past, let's mine it for what it's worth. And so I, I certainly understand the, the invocation, and we should learn from history. But I think it's important that as much as we learn from history, that we recognize our own agency. And I think that one of the greatest lessons that history teaches us is that human beings have agency. And we are the authors of history, not its prisoners. And I think it's very important that in contemplating metaphors, we don't become prisoners to metaphors. I think it's very important that we don't believe that strategic competition preordains armed confrontation. It's very important that we don't conclude that 
uh, strategic tensions preordain or render impossible great power cooperation. I understand the, the invocation of the analogy, and, and there are important lessons to be drawn, but I, I think it's important not to get you know, trapped by metaphors. And I read an article the, uh, the other day uh, by Vincent Nee, uh, who just recently joined The Guardian, and I'm, I'm forgetting the exact headline of the piece, but the upshot of the piece was, does it matter how we characterize the U.S.-China relationship? And so he basically was saying that there's this debate do we call the U.S.-China relationship, is it a new Cold War? Is it Cold War 2.0? Is it, is it something else? And he makes the point that words matter, metaphors matter, analogies matter, the language that we use. So if we talk about sort of a Cold War in a kind of loose sense, so there's some observers who when they talk about a Cold War or a new Cold War, they use the term in a looser sense. So that is to say, they're not saying that U.S.-China strategic competition is just sort of a replica of U.S.-Soviet competition. But they're using Cold War in kind of a looser sense to denote or connote this kind of long-term systemic competition. So there's a looser usage, but there are also some observers who say, no, there are actually many parallels between U.S.-China competition today and U.S.-Soviet competition. Um, I think that if we adopt the latter interpretation, I think that we run the risk leading ourselves astray. There are a number of differences uh, that, that one might enumerate between the two kinds of strategic competition. So just a few of them. The United States and the Soviet Union had very little in the way of trade and technological interdependence, and by design. The United States and China today, while it is true they are undoubtedly pursuing selective disentanglement and in the realm of technology, but it seems to me that for all the talk about decoupling, the United States and China still do residually maintain a very high degree of trade and technological interdependence. Uh, there was actually a study, or a, a blog post rather, uh, that came out by Nicholas Lardy of the Peterson Institute. He said that I think it was last year the China share of a total foreign direct investment actually uh, reached uh, a peak. So investment continues to pour into China. So anyhow, so interdependence is a big difference. While ideology is becoming more salient in, in U.S.-China competition, I, I don't know that ideology is as central to U.S.-China competition as it was during the Cold War. And I also think that many of America's allies and partners are wary of being entrapped in an ideological competition. So another difference, the Soviet Union posed a much more frontal, much more militaristic, much more ideological assault on the prevailing order. I think that one of the reasons that it's difficult to compete with China is that China, outside of the United States, has been the principal beneficiary of integration into the post-war order. China is thinking of how it can cultivate its influence outside of the system, but it's also deeply embedding itself and continuing to embed itself within the system. Stacy Goddard, a professor at Wellesley College, she talks about a strategy of embedded revisionism. And that is, to the extent that you can build your influence within an architecture, build sway within an architecture, you actually are better positioned to leverage that internal influence to revise it from within. So China is much more deeply embedded into the postal order than the Soviet Union ever was. China is also far more technologically and economically capable than the Soviet Union ever was. So there are a number of differences between the U.S.-Soviet competition during the Cold War and U.S.-China competition uh, today. And then, Grant, to the second part of your question, you know, how to strike that balance. One of the themes of the, the administration's uh, approach to China is this kind of this tripartite conception, which I think is, is right. There are adversarial elements, there are competitive elements, and there also are inevitably cooperative elements. Over time, the, perhaps the weighting, the weighting that you assign to each of those three components might evolve. But I, I think that, that that tripartite conception makes sense. And I, I think that there's a recognition, if you look at the White House's Interim National Security Strategic Guidance, it says that on a range of issues, uh, the United States will cooperate with China as we must. Climate change, pandemic disease, macroeconomic instability. 
one way of getting to competitive coexistence is to make sure that you don't allow competitive dynamics to overwhelm cooperative ones. Number one. Number two, uh, you impose guardrails on the relationship. To her credit, Wendy Sherman, on her recent trip to meet with her Chinese counterpart, you know, Ambassador Sherman said, the United States and China need to ensure that we impose guardrails to prevent intensifying competition from morphing into armed confrontation. So number two, you impose guardrails. But guardrails also require diplomacy. I do worry about the potential for diplomacy, this necessary diplomacy to get held hostage to domestic politics. And so it's, it's really not productive to talk about, you know, am I tougher on China or are you tougher on China? Let's sort of beat our chest to see who can be tougher on China. Uh, diplomacy is not, you, you don't engage in diplomacy as an act of altruism or as a display of weakness. You engage in diplomacy as an acknowledgement of reality. China is not going anywhere. We have to talk with them, not because we necessarily like what they're doing internally or externally, but because we have to talk. I think it's also important, and you mentioned uh, Professor Nye, and Professor Nye makes this point. He actually just wrote an article recently, a couple of days ago, on August 3rd, August 3rd for Project Syndicate. And he says that when you're thinking about dealing with other great power competitors, you have to avoid the twin risks of underestimation, which breeds complacence, but overestimation, which can yield alarmism. And I think that in dealing with China, the United States has to find a midway point between complacence and consternation. So let's rewind the, you know, the clock you know, 30 years ago to the end of the Cold War. I think that one could make the argument that in the kind of triumphalism that attended the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the United States probably erred too much in the direction of complacence. It's the end of history. We've defeated the Soviet Union. Authoritarianism has been consigned to the ash heap of history. China. China's on the wrong side of history. I think that we probably erred too much in the direction of complacence. But there is a risk now that if we overestimate China's competitive strengths, that we end up forging or we end up articulating a foreign policy that is China-centric. And I think that the best way that the United States can manage China's resurgence is, ironically and kind of paradoxically, is to formulate a foreign policy that's not China-centric. What do I mean by that? I think that if the United States adopts a China-centric foreign policy, I think that it actually projects anxiety rather than confidence. But if the United States instead says, look, we recognize that China's resurgence is a serious phenomenon, it's a multifaceted phenomenon, it will, of course, inform U.S. foreign policy, but we are not going to allow China's resurgence to dictate our foreign policy. The United States has a very wide range of foreign policy priorities. Um, and we also recognize, we meaning the United States, we recognize that our allies and partners, they want to join with us on affirmative undertakings, not just on reactionary ones. And so I think that in dealing with China, as we approach our allies and partners, of course, the management of China's resurgence comes up as it should and as it must. We're likely to see not the emergence of a grand coalition to contain China, but rather kind of the construction of sort of a, a quilt or a patchwork of issue-specific uh, responses to China's uh, resurgence. So rather than saying the objective of U.S. foreign policy is to manage China's resurgence, I think rather saying, what is it that the United States is hoping to achieve in the world? What is the post-pandemic order that we in the United States would like to bring about in, in conjunction with our allies and partners? And once we have converged upon that affirmative vector, then deciding how selective competition with China I think that it's also very important that as the United States appraises the, the competitive challenges from China, that, that it sort of tends to its own psyche. I do worry that we run the risk not only of overstating China's competitive strengths, but also of underestimating our own. You know, the United States has a number of unique competitive advantages. 
I think that we should be focusing on investing anew in those uh, competitive advantages and really thinking not so much about how we outshine China, but more about how we become a more dynamic version of the United States. And I think that to the extent that we focus on that project and we think about an affirmative vision rather than just a reactionary one, I think we'll be okay. You said in the U.S. context, right, we shouldn't let the tail of politics wag the dog of policy, right? We shouldn't have this chess beating, like who's stronger on China. When we look at China, it seems potentially to be the reverse with this wolf warrior diplomacy as Xi continues to centralize power and centralize himself ideologically within the Chinese system, they're becoming much more performative in their foreign policy. Can you speak to that a little bit and sort of say what the interplay is on on Dayren? I guess I wasn't surprised so much by the initiation of wolf warrior diplomacy, but by the continuation of a course of diplomacy that is proving so counterproductive. So let's rewind the clock to maybe uh, a little over a year ago. And think about, just remember what the narratives were in, say, March 2020 or April 2020. So in March 2020, April 2020, the United States was actually being convulsed simultaneously on three fronts, a fast-moving pandemic, uh, an attendant recession, uh, and protests against racial injustice. So the United States domestically was preoccupied. It was quite dysfunctional. And China, at least it seemed, China said, China recovered quite quickly from the first wave of the pandemic. It economically was beginning to recover from the pandemic, and it was beginning to to ship personal protective equipment overseas. It was beginning to dispatch teams of doctors to a number of countries in distress. And so if you remember the narratives at the time, the narratives were the United States is flailing, China is ascendant, authoritarianism has indeed triumphed. Maybe it didn't try, you know, maybe it was dealt a temporary blow with the dissolution of the Soviet Union, but authoritarianism is back. China is at the vanguard. Uh, democracies are underperforming. I mean, you remember those narratives. So at that time, given those narratives, uh, and this is, uh, I I often revisit this column, uh, another project syndicate column by Arvind Subramanian. He said, if China in March or April 2020, given those competing narratives, if China had taken certain steps to perhaps forgive debt owed to it by recipient uh, Belt and Road Initiative recipient countries, if it had taken other steps to basically contribute to the to the economic and health recovery of other countries, it would have been in a far better position. Frankly, even if China had just said, we're not going to contribute to healing the rest of the world, we're just going to tend to our own recovery, we're not going to engage in this wolf warrior diplomacy, we're just going to focus on ourselves. If China had just done that and allowed the rest of the world to kind of look on with horror at what was unfolding in the United States, I think that China would have been in a vastly different position reputationally and in turn strategically than it is now. What ends up happening the narrative starts going wrong for China. Reports start surfacing about defects in Chinese, Chinese shipments of personal protective equipment. There are highly publicized reports about discrimination against Africans residing in Guangzhou. And China's so-called wolf warrior uh, diplomats, they really take umbrage and they go on the offensive. They take to Twitter predominantly and they say that recipients of PPE, they should be grateful and they should express that gratitude publicly. When a number of countries began asking for an independent inquiry into the origins of the coronavirus, these wolf warrior diplomats, they began trafficking in conspiracy theories. They really, really not only lashed out, but they also started engaging in much more coercive diplomacy in its near abroad. So you remember the the skirmishes with India, which were the deadliest in, in about half a century. 
uh, Chinese economic coercion vis-a-vis Australia after Australia had the temerity to call for an independent inquiry into the origins of the uh, the coronavirus. So China pursued a course of diplomacy that not only compelled the members of the Quad to intensify their cooperation with one another, but had diplomatic, reputational consequences, strategic consequences far further afield. One concrete example, look at what's going on in the European Union. So shortly before the Biden administration comes into office, Brussels and Beijing signed this landmark agreement, a comprehensive agreement on investment. And many observers said, my goodness, despite this course of wolf warrior diplomacy, Beijing continues to be able to drive wedges between the United States and fellow uh, allies and partners. And yet, because of this course of diplomacy, the United States, the United Kingdom, Canada, and the European Union, they impose sanctions on uh, some Chinese officials for, for their involvement in human rights abuses against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. China responded with sanctions that were so disproportionate, they not only targeted high member uh, profile, high member, uh, high profile members of the European Parliament, but also you know, European think tanks, European non-governmental organizations. And the, the disproportionate nature of those retaliatory sanctions caused uh, members of the European Parliament to say, okay, let's press pause on ratification of this agreement. We're starting to see with this kind of course of wolf warrior diplomacy that the members of the Quad are now cooperating more with one another. Brussels, while, while not having a coherent position on Beijing, is starting to take, I think, a sterner disposition. It's not where, the, it's not where, where Washington is, but there is growing alignment between Washington and, and, and Brussels. And I remember asking myself this question, you know, why would China initiate and, and continue with a course of diplomacy that is clearly so counterproductive? And I think that there are a number of explanations one might offer. One explanation is that Xi Jinping wants to harness nationalistic sentiment, and in order to harness nationalistic sentiment, he can't afford to project weakness. And so he certainly can't afford to be seen as recalibrating in face of external pressure. If you believe that hypothesis, then perhaps we might see some sign of recalibration in China's diplomacy after the 20th Party Congress. Another explanation is that China perhaps feels a sense of triumphalism. If you look at the statements coming out of Xi Jinping and and high-level Chinese officials, there is a real sense that the global strategic balance is irreversibly shifting in Beijing's favor. In 2008, when the global financial crisis struck, those officials and those observers in China who felt that America had entered into a phase of terminal decline, those voices, they existed, but they they weren't the center of gravity. I think that the center of gravity within the Chinese foreign policy establishment at the time of the global financial crisis, still held that, okay, this global financial crisis, it's a blemish on America's macroeconomic stewardship. It's going to undermine potentially America's soft power. But you know, the gap between sort of America's comprehensive national power and China's comprehensive national power, it's still a huge gap. I think that the center of gravity now within the Chinese foreign policy establishment is that, yes, China is going to have challenges internally. It's going to face headwinds externally. But as, as Xi Jinping says, time and the situation are on our side or are in our favor. So if you believe that time and the situation are on your side or are in your favor, and if you believe that your economic centrality and your technological capacity are going to continue growing apace, you know, maybe you render the judgment that says, look, message to the rest of the world. You may not like what we're doing internally. You may not like what we're doing in- externally, but you need us more than the other way around. I think that that judgment is premature. I think that that judgment uh, smacks of hubris. I think that that judgment, and, and to me, actually, it kind of previews what I'll talk about it in sort of at the end when we talk about what we're following. I've been reading and rereading a piece in, in the July-August issue of Foreign Affairs 
a piece by uh, Jude Blanchett entitled She's Gamble, The Race to Consolidate Power and Stave Off Disaster. And, and he makes the point in this essay that She's calculations, they reflect a kind of a, a myopia and a hubris. And one of the reasons that I, I, I am not as concerned about the possibility that you know, China is going to supplant the United States for global preeminence, it's not even clear to me that China is going to be able to come to exercise hegemony even in the Asia Pacific, is that there is a disconnect that I think is becoming increasingly apparent between, on the one hand, China's growing economic and technological heft and its lack of strategic aplomb on the other. I think that at least among advanced industrial democracies, China finds itself more isolated. And if China continues to pursue a course of diplomacy that the trust it's capable of engendering with those advanced industrial democracies, it's going to constrain its own trajectory. Those advanced industrial democracies between them in the aggregate still do wield a preponderance of military and economic power. And so I don't see how China is able to articulate a credible pathway to global preeminence if it continues to engender ever-growing levels of strategic distrust with the advanced industrial democracies that still do wield collectively the preponderance of power, if, even as it invades more and more vociferously against the current order, it's unable to articulate a compelling alternative conception of its own, what does the pathway to global preeminence look like? I can actually envision a scenario in which, in kind of a strange scenario, in which you know we had this conversation 10, 20 years hence, in which China it might have the world's largest economy in terms of in, in terms of sort of absolute GDP, but it's not able to translate that aggregate GDP into a compelling vision of world order, a set of alliances and partnerships that can rival the one that the United States has. To the extent that China continues to grow economically and technologically, even if it, it's not actively exporting its ideology, even if it disclaims the existence of a China consensus, the power of its example might create more breathing room for authoritarianism abroad. So I'm not sanguine about the China challenge. I'm just making the argument that I think that China is carrying on in a way that is going to contribute to its own encirclement. And here's actually the irony. China's, China often says, uh, you know, China, or I think that China you know, believes that the principal impediment to whatever long-term objectives it might have is the United States. And I actually disagree. I think that China's main competitor, it's China. The main constraint on whatever ambitions China might have, it's not the United States, it's China. I take a certain reassurance from that, that conclusion, and it makes me think that if China is going to contribute more and more to its own encirclement, and if China is in the main, the principal constraint on whatever ambitions it may have, I think that the United States has a little bit more breathing room to articulate a foreign policy that manages China's resurgence without being beholden to it. Ali, before we move on to some other topics, I want to touch a little bit more on this question of trust with advanced democracies and areas of cooperation. I feel like I hear all the time that there you know, are a handful of issues where we should cooperate with China, and it's always climate change, global health, and, and I think you also said macroeconomics, which I sometimes hear less often. But I always find those kind of funny because they feel to me like, well, those are issues where we don't really have much of a choice. I mean, we can decide to coordinate more or less with our counterparts in China. But I think the pandemic has showed us that whatever actions the other country takes has very serious consequences and ramifications for the rest of the world. And that's, you know, in contrast to an area where maybe we really do have a choice whether or not to cooperate, like developing shared governance standards for technology or something like that. I guess I'm just curious, like, from your perspective, are those the areas where you think we should be cooperating? and 
do we even have a choice on those? And and for issues where we do have a choice that maybe are not usually on the list, you know, what what would you add? I believe in, in the latter. I don't think we have a choice. And actually, one of the, one of my biggest concerns is if we come to believe that we have a choice whether or not to cooperate on those issues, I think that that I think that that choice is a false one. It's an illusory one, and it would be very dangerous to our own vital national interests. I don't think that we have a choice. I think the, the well, we do have a choice. The choice is how long do we postpone the eventual reckoning with the reality that we have to talk. We do have a choice there, and I, I think that we should be talking sooner rather than later. If COVID-19 doesn't illuminate the imperative of cooperation, I mean, I don't know what could short of an armed confrontation between the United States and China, but then if there's an armed confrontation between the United States and China might actually destroy the foundations of the post-war order whose solemn objective was to prevent a repetition of an armed confrontation. And here, I, I despite being a congenital optimist, I, if I'm being honest, the reaction to COVID-19 has made me, has, makes me very concerned. I had thought that when the World Health Organization changed its designation of, of COVID-19 from a, an epidemic to a pandemic, I thought that that announcement or that declaration would have occasioned the kind of emergency cooperation between Washington and Beijing that we saw in the aftermath of the global financial crisis. Not only did we not see that kind of emergency coordination, we actually saw that the fallout from the pandemic has set in motion a series of dynamics that have brought the relationship to its lowest level since normalization in 1979 with no apparent floor in sight. And that development is, is, is quite alarming because, again, if the greatest crisis thus far of this century is intensifying strategic frictions rather than occasioning even a modicum of cooperation, I think that we're headed for some really, really tough days. I remember actually uh, at the end of the Obama administration, and at, at, at this point, at the end of the Obama administration, the relationship was certainly not, it, it, was, it was trending downward. And yet, I remember you know, talking to individuals sort of circa you know, December 2016, January 2017. I remember individuals saying, well, the relationship on balance, it's not going in the right direction, but we always have climate change where we can cooperate and we always have a health security where we can cooperate. Now, it doesn't even seem like we can cooperate on those two issues. So it's a long-winded way of saying, I don't think we have a choice to cooperate on those issues. The only choice we have is, again, when do we start talking? How frequently do we start talking? How much energy do we invest in cooperation? And I think, uh, and again, just to echo, uh, reiterate a point I made earlier, that we, the United States and China, have far more to lose by not talking uh, than by talking. I think that the longer protracted silence calcifies antagonistic dynamics. The risk of silence, I think, far outweigh those of, of dialogue. To the, the second part of your question, you know, sort of beyond kind of the, the first tranche of issues where we just we don't have a choice really but to talk, you know, where are some additional areas? I suspect that any additional areas I might suggest would probably make me sound extraordinarily naive, but you know, hope springs eternal, so I'll spitball for a little bit. I do think that there are opportunities to cooperate on infrastructure development, not because the United States and China necessarily have congruent approaches to infrastructure development, but just because there's such an urgent need. If you look at studies put out by, I think it was the Asian Development Bank uh, that put out a study, I think in 2017, uh, and they were just estimating out to, I think, sort of 2030, how much infrastructure development would be required in, I don't know if, it would, I don't know if the study just focused on the Asia Pacific or if it was focused globally, but, but the upshot of the study by the Asian Development Bank was the amount of infrastructure development that's going to be required in just over the coming decade 
just for the world to be able to grow sustainably, barely manage the challenges associated with you know, climate change and such. I, I mean, it, it was just a staggering figure. So when, when you think about the world's infrastructure needs, when you think about the world's connectivity needs, when you think about what is the world going to have to do just to get out of this pandemic? I mean, and again, I, I probably sound naive here, but recovering from a pandemic has become sort of an instrument of this term, these terms, vaccine nationalism, vaccine diplomacy. I mean, we're not in a good place if recovering from a pandemic becomes dispoliticized, but the needs of the developing world are, are urgent. I mean, I, I read an article that said that as of the time when the article was published, of all the shots in arms that had been administered, 0.1%, only 0.1% had been administered in low-income countries, 0.1%. The health needs of a vast stretch of humanity are enormous. We now are not only talking about the metastasis of the Delta variant, there's now a Delta Plus variant. South Korea, I think, reported two, either two cases or two fatalities from the Delta Plus variant recently. So the longer this pandemic persists, the more mutations are likely to develop, the more likely it is that those mutations will be more resistant to current vaccines, perhaps even capable of circumventing those vaccines altogether. And the United States and China, even if they, you know, leaving aside humanitarian considerations, ethical considerations, normative considerations, from a pure perspective of just selfish self-interest, it's not in America's interest or China's interest for this pandemic to keep going on. It's going to be a drag on global health. It's going to be a drag on the global economy. And so the more that they can cooperate to get more shots in arms and to help the rest of the world recover, the better. And I think also you know, what might spur the United States and China to cooperate more on sort of issues outside of that kind of, we just don't have a choice. And, and for me, it's really accepting the reality of each other's endurance, accepting the reality of the other's resilience. Again, in the new issue of foreign affairs, um, I found this actually very encouraging. Uh, there are seven essays in, in the called Can China Keep Rising? Uh, one of them is by Yan Shui Tong, another by Wang Jisou, so two very, very prominent uh, international relations scholars in China. And both of them, both Professor Yan and Professor Wong in their essays, referenced an essay that Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan had written in the September-October 2019 issue of Foreign Affairs, in which Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan talk about the imperative of competitive coexistence. And both Professor Yan and Professor Wong said, right, we need to think about competitive coexistence. It's this interesting kind of discrepancy between this intensification of strategic tensions in the short term with a recognition that in the long term, whether we like it or not, begrudgingly, even if we sort of have to be dragged kicking and screaming, the long term is going to be some manifestation, some operationalization of what Kurt Campbell and Jake Sullivan talked about, competitive coexistence, competitive cohabitation. And to that point, there's a separate essay, actually, that, that Kurt Campbell wrote for Chatham House, and it was this past August, August of 2020. He said the United States should not predicate its policy towards China either on the prospect of a grand bargain between Washington and Beijing, or on the specter of China's disintegration. We're not going to have a grand bargain. Diplomacy is going to be incremental. It's going to be painful. It's going to be slow moving. I think that the longer that the United States and China converge around each other's resilience, converge around the imperative of competitive cohabitation, the more they can say, okay, well, I don't really feel like talking to you, and you don't really feel like talking to me. But And that's, that's what diplomacy is about. I mean, if diplomacy were just about talking to your allies and your partners, it, it would be much more limited. And I, I think there's a real opportunity, a real imperative for diplomacy. And, and you're going to our earlier discussion about kind of the, the uses and, and the, the limits of history. 
you know, one use of history is it reminds us of the, the dangers of complacence and the dangers of militarism and the dangers of not talking. I mean, look at World War I and World War II. And it also reminds us of our agency. So the United States and China, um, if they are true students of World War I, and if they are true students of World War II, uh, then they will recognize that it is within their power not only to avert an armed confrontation, but it, that it's also within their power to sit down and forge a new kind of diplomacy, a new model of great power relations, as much as I recoil when I hear that phrase, because it's one of those abstractions that can be uh, interpreted in so many ways. But they do have an opportunity to inaugurate a new kind of international relations in which a preeminent power and its principal competitor are not preordained to engage in armed confrontation, in which they are able to salvage a baseline of cooperation, in which they are able to maintain a tense but tenable balance between competitive dynamics and cooperative ones. And I think that it would be very unwise, and I think that it would be very uh, sobering and very tragic, frankly, if they were to conclude that strategic tensions had become so overwhelming that either diplomacy had become impossible or that the exercise of diplomacy had become a display of weakness. I don't think that we need to resign ourselves to those conclusions, and we really can't afford to. So with that, let's go to our final segment where we each talk about something political or cultural we've been following this week. Zoe, let's start with you. You know, so like many of us, I have obviously been following the coverage of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And specifically, one piece of it that I've been keeping my eye on is this de facto press blackout that has been imposed by the Pentagon. There's a really great article in The New Yorker this past week by Megan Stack on this. There's been these sort of repeated denials of requests for journalist embeds and for interviews with troops. And it's pretty troubling because this is such an important inflection point in our engagement in the region. And it's it's happening, you know, essentially shrouded in darkness. I think we'll have to see how this unfolds. But, you know, the American public certainly has a role to play here in demanding some amount of transparency and access at this really critical juncture. Ali, what are you following this week? I previewed, you know, what I've, I've been following. So I mentioned the, the, the main package of essays in the new issue of Foreign Affairs. A lot of really, really good material in there. Um, I would also, and, and I've recommended it before, and I recommend it whenever I can, Ryan Haas's new book, uh, Stronger, which is you know, talking about how the United States in dealing with China, how it can find this midway point between complacence and consternation. I think it really is. It's just a masterclass. I hope and trust that it will be widely read uh, in and out of government. And then I'm looking forward to Anne-Marie Slaughter's new book coming out on September 7th from Princeton uh, University Press, and it's called Renewal, From Crisis to Transformation in Our Lives, Work, and Politics. And it, it's, so it's a very it's thinking about renewal in, in, in a very capacious and multifaceted sense. And I'm, so I'm really looking forward to, to that book because I, I think that as we think about what a post-pandemic world might look like, I think that many individuals are thinking about how to renew their relationships with, with loved ones and friends. I think that many governments are thinking about how to renew their social contracts with the publics. I think that many observers are thinking about how to create a more resilient order. Uh, so how do we renew and, and, and update the post-war order so that it's better able to manage not only short-term emergencies, but also longer-term stresses? So I, I really, I think that you know, as we think about sort of a post-pandemic future, um, sort of on issue after issue, I really do think that renewal is the through line. So I, I'm really, really looking forward to, to reading her book. 
So rather than getting drawn in to talk about my favorite national security topic, water scarcity, I'm actually going to endorse a web app this week called the Eternal Jukebox. Uh, it was made as part of Music Hack Day at MIT by Paul Lemaire. Basically, what it does is it takes a song, it maps it to find similar sections of the song, creating branches. It then plays the song and skips around, creating a, a simple remix. I've really enjoyed listening to my 90s hip hop and lo-fi on this and look forward to our AI DJ future. Check it out at eternalbox.dev and throw some money their way on Patreon to hasten the coming music singularity. With that, thanks for joining us. Next in Foreign Policy is produced in cooperation with Foreign Policy for America's Next Gen Initiative. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. You can follow me online at Grant Haver, Zoe at Z Weinberg, and Ali at Ali underscore wine. This week's podcast is brought to you by the Bipartisan Infrastructure Framework. Stop trying to make Biff happen. It's not going to happen. Join us in two weeks to hear more about what's next in foreign policy.